for sharing that song with us. Isn't that true? God is calling each one of us to be his. I also want to thank Pedro for sharing the holy city with us, as well as each person that has participated in this Blue Mountain Television Sabbath. And I want to take this moment to thank Pastor Jeff and the pastoral team for allowing us to present the church service to you here this Sabbath day. Now, as we begin, let's open God's word, but let's begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you for being with us through this church service so far. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word, as we study here this Sabbath day, that your spirit will bless us and guide us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1921. David and Sophia Flood decided to become missionaries. They were from Sweden and they wanted to become missionaries. So they went to the Belgian Congo in Africa. This country is today known as the Republic of Congo. It's right there in the heart of Africa. And so they went there and they met some other Scandinavian couple there called the Ericsons. And together these four people worked at an outpost spreading the gospel message. But they decided that they wanted to do a little bit better, to go to a further remote area of Africa. So they went to a village called Endolera. And there, when they got there, the chief of this village, fearing the local gods, says, you're not allowed to come into our village. So they went a half a mile up, built their mud huts there, but the life was very tough and difficult. They didn't have much success. There was one boy that was allowed to come and sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Sophia Flood decided that if this was the only African she could talk to about Jesus Christ, that that's what she would do. And so over time, slowly, they began preaching to this young boy, and he became a believing Christian. The Ericsons, things were so difficult that they finally decided to go back to the outpost because malaria was an issue. They had several bouts of that, and it was just so difficult that they, they went back to the outpost. But David and Sophia Flood stayed and continued. Sophia found herself pregnant, and when the time came for the baby to be delivered, the chief allowed a midwife to come help with the birthing process. She had had several bouts of malaria, and so it was a hard, tough labor. But she gave birth to a little baby girl that they named Aina. But like I said, the labor was tough. And malaria, several bouts of malaria. And so 17 later, days later, unfortunately, Sophia died. David was crushed. He buried his 27-year-old wife in a crude grave, took his daughter, and went back to the outpost. There he handed the baby to the Ericsons and said, God has ruined my life. I don't want anything to do with him. I can't take care of this baby. You take care of him. And with that, he went back home to Sweden angry and bitter at God for what he had done. Now, this isn't the end of David's story. But we're going to tuck that story away, and we'll come back to it later in our message. 
Today I want to take a look at one of the parables of Jesus. It's found in Matthew chapter 13. So if you do have your Bible and would like to open to Matthew chapter 13, that's where we will spend the bulk of our time here this morning. But before we begin, let's look at what exactly is a parable. And why did Jesus use parables? Christ to Object Lessons on page number 17 has this to say about, par- or, yeah, about parables. Men could learn of the unknown through the known. Heavenly things were revealed through the earthly. God was made manifest in the likeness of men. So it was in Christ's teaching, the unknown was illustrated by the known, divine truths by earthly things with which the people were most familiar. Jesus used illustrations of things people were used to to help them know things that they didn't understand. You don't take things that you don't understand to help you understand other things that you don't understand. It just doesn't work that way. I suppose if it were in today's world, what he would have done is maybe done the parable of the cell phone or the computer or the car. But they didn't have those back then. All they had was it was an agricultural society. And so a lot of the parables fit in that society. A lot of parables are a little bit open-ended. Sometimes the meaning isn't always obvious. And it gets us to think a little bit as we think about the meaning of the parable. I have an Andrews study Bible. And under parables, it has this definition for parables. And I like it, and I think we're going to go with it here today. It says, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a story based on earthly things to get us thinking about the heavenly things. So as we think about that, let's dive into the parable of the sower. This parable is found in three different gospels. Matthew chapter 13, which we will spend the bulk of our time, Mark 4, and then Luke 8. We'll get a little bit from Luke 8 because I like the way it describes a couple things. But by and large, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through the whole parable, and then we're going to go back And we'll dissect it a little bit. So, Matthew 13, beginning in verse number 3. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has an ear, or he who has ears, let him hear. So there you have it, the parable of the sower. Now back in Jesus' time, they didn't have the answer key to this parable. They, They didn't know exactly what it meant. And to be honest with you, even the disciples didn't fully understand what this parable meant. Luke chapter 8, verse number 9 is where we're going to go next. And this is what the disciples said to Jesus right after he finished sharing this parable. It says, then his disciples asked him, saying, what does this parable mean? So 
they didn't understand it. They wanted to better understand it. Ellen White states on page 35 of Christ Object Lessons this. The disciples themselves had not understood the parable, but their interest was awakened. They came to Jesus privately and asked for an explanation. This was the desire with which Christ wished to arouse, that he might give them more definite instruction. He explained the parable to them, as he will make plain his word to all who seek him in sincerity of heart. Those who study the word of God with hearts open to the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit will not remain in darkness as to the meaning of the word. That's a good promise there, friends, is it not? If we are truly seeking to understand what God's word is telling us, God will reveal it to us. We will not be left in darkness. And so the disciples truly wanted to know what this parable meant. And so Jesus gives them the answer key to this parable. And because he gives them the, the answer key, we also have that answer key because it's written in God's word. So as we look at this parable, when, when, when people decided to do sowing of seed back in Bible times. They didn't go get their John Deere tractor, plow the field, and sow that way. What they had was big bags, and they'd grab handfuls of seed, and they'd toss it out. And that seed went to many different grounds. But we want to know as we begin, what does the seed represent? Luke 8, 11 is the answer. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. That's pretty simple and straightforward. The word of God is the seed represented in this parable. That's pretty self-explanatory, is it not? So now the next question is, who is the sower? Who is the one that is sowing the seed? Matthew 13, verse number 37 says, He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now this is taken from another parable of the wheat and the tares. But I think we can safely assume from that parable and drop it into this one that the son of man, Jesus Christ, is the sower. And Ellen White agrees in Christ Object Lessons, page 35. Christ had come not as a king, but as a sower. Not for the overthrow of kingdoms, but for the scattering of seed not to point his followers to earthly triumphs and national greatness, but to a harvest to be gathered after patient toil and through losses and disappointments. So the seed is the gospel, and the sower is Jesus Christ. Take careful notice of this. Both of these elements in this parable are constant. The seed and the sower are the same. So, the, the sower is sowing seed on the good ground. The sower is sowing seed on the wayside, the stony ground, and the thorny ground. All of the grounds receive the exact same seed. It's just their response to the seed that is different. It's like our hearts. When the seed is sown in our lives, how are we responding to that seed? So as we look at these different types of ground. Let's look at it from that 
aspect of how the seed and the heart is receiving that seed. So the first type of ground that we have is the wayside. Now back in Bible times, what they did is when they sowed seed, they had these little paths around all of the, the fields. That's where they could walk because when they walked, it made really hard pack. And when you scattered seed on that hard pack, the seed couldn't go in and germinate and produce a crop. It just could not penetrate. And so what does this represent? Luke 8 verse 12 says this. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So this is the birds. The devil's coming and taking this away. You could say these are the people that are not responsive to what is being presented to them. Christ's Object Lessons, page 44. Ellen White says this, The seed sown by the wayside represents the word of God as it falls upon the heart of an inattentive hearer. Like the hard-beaten path trodden by the feet of men and beasts is the heart that becomes a highway for the world's traffic. Its pleasures and sins, absorbed in selfish aims and sinful indulgences, the soul is hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The spiritual faculties are paralyzed. Men hear the word, but understand it not. They do not discern that it applies to themselves. They do not realize their need or their danger. They do not perceive the love of Christ, and they pass by the message of his grace as something that does not concern them. So these are people that hear the word and just think it has nothing to do with them. You could say they are an unresponsive heart. They are not responding to the word that has been sown in their lives. A great example of this is found in the book of Exodus. Moses and Aaron have gone to Pharaoh and they have said, please let my people go. But Pharaoh, what was his response? Exodus 5 and verse 2 says, And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. He had been presented the word, but he didn't care. He was unresponsive to the word. So that's the wayside hearers, an unresponsive heart. So we move on to the stony ground. And the stony ground, there we had stones there. You know, many times when you're planting a garden you want to go and get all those stones out because there's no good way for the roots to dig down deep they hit the stones they got a shallow root system and when the sun comes and scorches it what happens the the plant dies because it has no good root system so back to matthew chapter 13 we get what jesus mentions is the stony ground hearers. So Matthew 13, verse number 20 says, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So these are the people that... They follow Jesus. At the call, they follow Jesus. And that is noble. God is calling us to follow him. And these people do that. 
but they don't truly count the cost of what it takes to follow Jesus. And so Ellen White states, for page 47 of Christ's Object Lessons, but those who in the parable are said to receive the word immediately do not count the cost. They do not consider what the word of God requires of them. They do not bring it to face to face with all of their habits in life and yield themselves fully to its control. So you could say this, that when things get tough, when persecution arrives, they're gone. They disappear. They want nothing to do with it. And so that's the stony ground hearers. You could say they are an impulsive heart. They impulsively follow Jesus, but once they realize how difficult it's going to be, they disappear. A great example of this is found in John chapter 6. After the feeding of the 5,000 in the early part of John chapter 6, the next day they come to Jesus wanting more of the bread that has been given. And Jesus gives them instruction. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Well, some of the disciples, the 70 disciples and some of the other crowd thought, oh, this is weird. This doesn't make sense. That's disgusting if you really think about it. And so John 6 and verse number 66, I think is an interesting number based on the verse. But John 6, 66 says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They had seen what it was going to take to truly follow him, and they decided they didn't want him to be part of him. This is the 70 disciples, not the 12. Because Jesus turns to the 12 right after that and asks, are you going to leave too? And they said, Lord, where will we go? They continued to follow him. So that's the stony ground here, an impulsive heart. So now we move on to the thorns, the thorny ground. Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 22 is where we get the answer key for this ground. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. How many of you have a garden? How many of you have weeds in your garden? What is the garden like when you have weeds in it? It doesn't produce much fruit, does it? I heard it said this way, nothing grows faster than what you don't want. So you don't want weeds in your garden? That's what seems to grow the fastest. And unless you take care of them, they're going to keep growing and take over your garden. And then you don't have a harvest. Christ's Object Lessons, page 53. The love of riches has an infatuating, deceptive power. Too often, those who possess worldly treasure forget that it is God who gives them power to get wealth. They say, my power and by the might of my hand have I gotten this wealth. Their riches, instead of awakening gratitude to God, lead to the exaltation of self. They lose the sense of their dependence upon God and their obligation to their fellow men. Instead of regarding wealth as a talent to be employed for the glory of God and the uplifting of humanity, they look upon it as a means of serving themselves. Instead of developing in man's the instead of developing in man the attributes of God, 
Riches thus used are developing in him the attributes of Satan. The seed of the word is choked with thorns. The thorns spring up and take over in the heart. You could say this is a preoccupied heart. They are preoccupied with the riches and the deceitfulness of this world. A prime example of this is the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he asks, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. And he says, I've done that from my youth. And then he says, go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor and follow me. And Matthew 19, verse 22, his response is this. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The possessions of this world had taken over in his life. It was more important than a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Up until now, we've had looked at three different grounds. And all three of them don't have good results, do they? We don't really want to find ourselves in any of these grounds. Luckily, there is one more, and this is the good ground. Matthew 13, verse 23 says, But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. This is where we want to be, friends. The good ground. Christ's object lessons again, page 58. That on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, Keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. These are the people that hear the word of God and they put it into practice in their lives. The fruit of the Spirit is evident in their lives as they are Christians. You could say these people are receptive, a receptive heart. They're the ones that are receiving the word of God. A prime example of this type of people is found in the Bereans. Paul had preached to the Bereans, but they didn't take him at his word. Acts 17, verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. These were the people that put into practice what they were reading in God's word. So that's it. That's the parable of the sower. Four different type of grounds. Four responses to the seed that had been sown on these ground. So what is our takeaway from this parable? Well, I have two of, two of them for us today. The first one is that everybody in this room, everybody that's listening on broadcast, is represented by one of these four types of ground. The number four in Bible prophecy represents the four corners of the earth. And so really you could say everybody in the whole wide world is represented by one of these four types of ground. So I would encourage each one of us to do some soul searching. Search our hearts. What type of ground is our heart? Are we the unresponsive heart represented by the wayside? Are we the impulsive heart represented by the stony ground? Are we the preoccupied heart represented by the thorny ground? 
or the responsive heart represented by the good ground? Which ground do we find ourselves in today? But the question is, if I do some soul searching and I find myself in the thorny ground or the stony ground or even the wayside, can I change? Is it possible to get over to the good ground? And I would say yes, with God's help, it, it is possible to move from some spot where we don't want to be to a good place. We can ask God into our lives and he will help us break up the hard-packed soil in our lives so that the seed can germinate and produce a crop. We can ask God to come in and take those rocks and remove them from the gardens of our heart so that the roots can dig down deep. We can ask him to help do some weeding and pull out the thorns so that it isn't choking our lives. Our goal is to be on the good ground. But it's not going to be easy. If we're over here, it's not going to be easy. We can't just snap our fingers and be from here to there in just a moment. It takes toil. It takes patience. It takes digging in and getting God's help to make that a reality. I heard John Bradshaw tell an illustration that helps illustrate this really good. There was a big pine tree, a big strong pine tree that was in the middle of this town. It was the pride and joy of this town. And one day the townsfolk looked at this tree and said, hmm, that tree looks like it's lonely, as if trees get lonely. And they decided that maybe they needed to plant some other trees. And so they planted a spruce tree right next to this pine tree so that it wouldn't be lonely. And the pine tree thought, wow, now I have somebody to talk to, as if talk, trees talk. But this spruce tree looks up to this pine tree and he says, I want to grow big and strong like you someday. How do I do that? How do I go about that? And the pine tree looked down at him. He says, what you need to do is put your roots down deep into the earth. And every single day you need to look up. That's exactly what we need to do is to put our roots down deep into the word of God. And every day look to him for salvation. And he will be with us. And we can be a part of that good ground. So that's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, we established earlier that Jesus Christ was the sower. But one more time from Christ's object lessons, on page 34, we read this. His servants in like manner must go forth to sow. We are called to also be sowers of the seed, not just Christ. We need to be sowing the seeds as well. Some of you are probably asking, broadcasting the gospel, how does this sermon fit in to broadcasting the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I looked up the definition of broadcast, and this is what I found. To scatter or sow seed or something similar over a broad area. So you could say earlier this week when I fertilized my lawn that I was broadcasting fertilizer to my lawn. Back in Bible times, when they had that big sea, bag of seed, and they were, what were they doing? Broadcasting the seed over that ground. 
a second definition of broadcasting, and this is probably a little bit more similar to what we're used to today, is to send out or transmit something such as a program by means of radio or television or by streaming over the internet. So Blue Mountain Television is broadcasting. And if you marry these two ideas together, Blue Mountain Television is broadcasting the seed of the gospel. For 29 years, Blue Mountain Television has been sowing these seeds. And today, we are just as passionate about spreading those seeds as we were 29 years ago. As Linnell mentioned in our welcome, Blue Mountain Television has begun a visioning process to see how we can better spread the seeds of the gospel. And it's exciting as the, as the board is getting together and deciding how we want to spread the gospel, how we want to be a better television station. There's some exciting things that are coming up here in the near future. And I pray that you will continue to keep Blue Mountain Television in your prayers as we work through this process. And come this fall, we have an amazing initiative that we will love to share with each one of you. But hang on, the best is yet to come. And I want to let you know that by supporting the ministry of Blue Mountain Television, you're supporting a ministry that's spreading the everlasting gospel. We have several good examples of people that are being won to Christ through Blue Mountain Television. Daniel Biggs, our own production manager, was nurtured by Blue Mountain Television into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. He was baptized, and now he works at Blue Mountain Television to sow those exact same seeds to others. There's the story of John Jackson, who had had a stroke. He was depressed. And one day in the hospital, he turned on Blue Mountain Television, and he was lifted up. His soul was lifted up. And now he is a proponent of Blue Mountain Television. He is wanting people to know about the wonderful things that Blue Mountain Television has to offer. There's a story of Becky and her mom that over the years were watching Blue Mountain Television and came to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ because of the ministry of Blue Mountain Television. In my conversations with Pastor Jeff, many people in this baptismal tank are because of Blue Mountain Television. Blue Mountain Television has played a part in their becoming baptized members. And that brings me back to David Flood. David Flood had left God. He wanted nothing to do with God. God had ruined his life. He left his daughter, Aina, with the Ericsons, and he fled. He was gone. As we look at David Flood's life, what type of ground do you think he fits in? Well, as I look at it, he's the stony ground, the impulsive heart. He thought for a season that it would be a good idea to follow Jesus Christ. But when things got tough, he was gone. Well, sadly, eight months later, after Aina was left with the Ericsons, they got some strange sickness, and they both died. The, Aina was then given to a United States uh, people that were also missionaries there at the same station. And by the age of three, she moved back with her new adopted parents to South Dakota. And there she grew up. The... The new family was 
fearful that they'd have issues if they tried to go back to Africa because they had adopted her. So therefore, they transitioned to pastoral ministry. And that's how Aina grew up. She met a man later by the name of Dewey Hurst. She met him and they got married. They started a family. And eventually, Dewey became president of a small Bible college in Seattle. And so they were living there in Seattle, and Aina was surprised to see a lot of Scandinavian heritage around her. One day, she got a Swedish religious magazine. It appeared in her mailbox. Now, she had never been to Sweden, even though she was Swedish. But she, she couldn't read the paper that was given to her. But she was still thumbing through it, and she stopped cold in her tracks. There was a picture of a primitive grave in Africa with a white cross. And there on the cross was the name Sophia Flood. That was her mother. And she wanted to know exactly what that story was all about. So she raced to the college where she knew somebody could translate that story for her. And so the story was translated. They said the article was about a missionary family that came to Endolera in Africa. The, the family had a white baby girl, and then the mother had died. But before that, they had won a boy to the, Jesus Christ. And after that baby girl had, had been born, the family left. And after that family left, the little boy asked the chief, can I build a mission or a school there in the village. And the chief allowed the school to be built. And this little boy won all of the students to Jesus Christ. In turn, the students converted their parents. And so now you have a whole village, including the chief, that are now Bible-believing Christians. The article went on to say that there were some 600 people that were practicing Christians in that community, all because of David and Sophia Flood's influence, all because they, and the sacrifice that they had given. Well, several years later on their 25th anniversary, the college gave Dewey and Aina a trip to Sweden. And there on her way to Sweden, Aina vowed to find her family. She found that her father had remarried when he got back to Sweden. He had four more children, but he still hated and resented God. He had dissipated his life with alcohol, and he recently had a stroke. Aina was thrilled to meet with her half-siblings, and she really wanted to talk with her father. And so she got that chance. She walked into the apartment of her father, he was laying on the bed, and he, she said, Papa, it's Aina. And he rolled over in the bed to face her. And he said, oh, Aina, I never meant to leave you all those years ago. And Aina responded, it's okay, Papa. God took care of me. And at the name of God... He turned back over. Well, God ruined my life. I want nothing to do with him. 
Aina wasn't deterred. She says, Papa, I have a story I want to tell you. A story, a true story. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. That little boy that you won to Christ converted the whole village. And now there's over 600 people that are worshiping God because of your sacrifice. And slowly, father and daughter had a good conversation the rest of that day. And by the end of the afternoon, David had turned his heart back to God that he had rejected all those years before. Several weeks later, David Flood died. But he was not an impulsive heart. He was not a stony ground hearer. He had become a receptive heart to God. He was now a saved Christian. Several years later, Aina and her husband were visiting a conference in London, England. And there at the conference, a young man got up and talked about the gospel spreading in his country of Congo. Aina goes up to him afterwards and says, you don't by chance know David and Sophia Flood. And he said, oh, do I know them? I was the little boy that they presented the gospel to all those years before. And now he's a church official in this country, over 110,000 believing Christians. He said, your mother is honored in our country for the sacrifice that her, that she had made. You have to come to Africa and see the thing that your mother has done. And so in time, that's what happened. She went to Africa, and there she was able to visit the grave of her mother. And they had a service a little later in the day. And at that service, at the conclusion of the service, the pastor used this verse, John 12, verse number 24. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You see, friends, all it does is it takes one grain of seed and it can produce a bountiful, wonderful harvest. At Blue Mountain Television, we are sowing that seed far and wide. Now, when we sow seed, what are we? We are expecting a harvest. You don't plant a garden with all your vegetables and then go, okay, that's nice, and then move on, do you? No, you want to eat the fruit of your labor. And God is one day going to come back to this earth to claim his people. And I personally want to see as many people in God's kingdom as possible. So that's why we sow. We sow the gospel. We sow the seeds of the gospel so that one day when the harvest happens, we will have a harvest to go home to.